Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Hey, Matthew chapter 7 is where we are in our Bible study series, uh, looking uh, at the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus here, Matthew 5 through 7, and we have reached the final chapter of this sermon, um, and we've entitled this series Summer on the Mount. We're just, I don't even know if it's still considered summer, but uh, we're just kind of wrapping up the end of summer here with the end of this sermon. Uh, again, looking at Jesus' words here to his disciples, and we're going to unpack that a little bit further. Uh, this is a, man, it's all red letters, the Sermon on the Mount, right? So it's, it's all Jesus speaking, so every verse and every chapter is just loaded with such life-changing, uh, power-packed truth. Um, and the same is, is certainly true of the chapter we're in today in Matthew 7. So, um, man, let's, uh, let's, let's read this together. Matthew chapter 7, a pretty well-known passage. Um, let's read our scripture reading today, teaching text. It's Matthew 7, 1 through 12. So grab your Bibles, turn there, and uh, I'll read uh, uh, here in this passage and lead us. Uh, the verses will be up on the screen. All right, so Matthew 7, Jesus says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with, what, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, good give good gifts? Sorry, how much more is your, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is the word of God. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Each week, we want to just express our gratitude and thanks for the gift of your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, illuminating the way and the life, the abundant life that you're calling us into. And certainly, um, what an opportunity for that here, Jesus, in reading your very words on such a challenging and uh, needed topic. Uh, and so I ask, uh, just want to pray and ask God for your blessing and your spirit. 
Um, I pray you would use me despite me. I pray you would use this time for your glory. Fill me uh, for a, a, a purpose uh, greater than anything I could come up with, God. And just, yeah, use this time to speak to us. We just want to hear you speak to us. I pray you teach us, lead us, give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I just want to give a little caveat and say that um, the title of my sermon is not due to creative laziness, okay? Um, a lot of you guys know that right now, uh, if you follow me on social media, you're aware that this is, I've dubbed this weekend my single dad weekend. Brittany, my wife, she headed out for Chattanooga, Tennessee on Thursday. It was a birthday uh, gift, her getting away, going to visit one of her best friends up there, um, which left your boy at home with the kids. And so um, a lot of you have been, I just want to say, first of all, thank you, all right? A lot of you have been reaching out to me, expressing your support and your love. Uh, there's a 24-7 prayer ch- uh, intercessory prayer chain that's going. You could also sign up for that below. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I had a, a dad friend of mine reach out and say, hey, man, we got to stick together. <laughs> that was like my favorite comment of the weekend. But um, so I've been uh, with the three kids, super thankful for uh, the uh, a family who's also been helping with that. But nonetheless, that's my little caveat. Here's the title of my sermon this weekend, and you're going to notice why I'm saying all that, because it's rather simple. Here's the title. The title of my message this weekend is simply Three Key Characteristics of a Christian. Three Key Characteristics of a Christian. I don't know, maybe if, if I wasn't a single dad this weekend, I'd have a little bit more creative juice in there and have some more alliteration going. But there's kind of like a vibe there, three key kind of rhymes, characteristics of a Christian. Okay, I got bars, yo. All right. Um, anyway, this is uh, where we're going today. Jesus here in this passage giving us three key characteristics of a Christian. Let me just say that now is a time for us to be evaluating what are the key characteristics of a Christian, of a Christian. Let me ask yourself this, uh, let me ask you and have you ask yourself this question this morning really simply, are you a Christian? And maybe a better question is, what do you mean? Or or what does that mean? Now the word Christian in our culture today has kind of become a catch-all word to describe a certain um, belief, a, a certain adherence to orthodox doctrine uh, of the church throughout the centuries. Um, It has to do with following in the way of Jesus, and it's really the primary title that we would give our, of course, world religion, and that we would mostly give ourselves. Uh, When you do any survey that that asks you your religious preference, that's usually what's there. Now, sometimes it's specific, like Protestant or non-denom or whatever, Uh, but for the most part, it's Christian. Christian, that's kind of like the primary title that we give ourselves as followers of Jesus, which is interesting because it's not a really consistently used word in Scripture. In fact, it's rarely ever used of, as, of Christians referring to themselves. It's actually Acts chapter 11, that if you see at the end of this verse, this is, remember, the book of Acts uh, details the early followers of Jesus. After Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, following his, his death, burial, and resurrection, 40 days on earth, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. After giving instructions to his disciples, he sends them to wait for the power of his spirit, and from that promise now has come 2,000 years of 
the fire of Christianity spreading around the globe, billions and billions of Christ followers today. But in the early stages of that, you have Acts chapter 11, and verse 26 tells us that it was at Antioch. Notice what it says there at the bottom of this verse here. It says that the disciples were first called Christians. At Antioch, the disciples weren't calling themselves Christians. They were disciples. Disciples of Jesus. It's what we are, right? It's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, being disciples, disciples of Jesus. Now, uh, just remember, the, the idea of a disciple, what do we mean when we say we're disciples of Jesus? A, a disciple is someone who is apprenticing under Jesus. We might say it's someone who, has, uh, who belongs to Jesus in redemption. They've been saved. They've been born again. They've been reconciled to God through their faith in Jesus. They have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. And in that turning towards Jesus, there is this adopting of a way. There is this pursuit now after the way of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. That's what you had there in the early church. You had disciples, you, you had uh, followers of Jesus who prioritized their lives. Here's what a disciple is. Even today, it, this is the language we use for our church. A, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is someone who prioritizes their lives around three goals. Number one, being with Jesus. Presence, proximity, relationship. Number two, learning from Jesus in that relationship, learning his way, his, his teaching and his practices. And then thirdly, the result is becoming like Jesus. And this isn't just exclusive. These three priorities aren't just exclusive to Christianity. Uh, there were Greek and Roman forms of apprenticeship and discipleship. But this is the big idea. You would seek to live your life with your rabbi, to know him, to follow him. There's the famous expression, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Wherever he would go, may his footsteps, uh, you know, uh, may you follow in those footsteps. That's the expression there. And you're seeking to be with them in order to learn from them. And the result is you actually become like them. Now, this is what it means to be a disciple. That's what the early church devoted themselves to. So much so that in Antioch, these disciples, let's look at this verse again, were called Christians. Think about this. The idea here is that there were certain characteristics of these disciples that resembled the Christ. The way that they treated the marginalized, the way that they served the poor, the way that they loved each other, the way that they devoted themselves to God in prayer, there were these characteristics that resembled Jesus so much so that people looked on and they said, you guys are Christians. Isn't that interesting? So, so here's the point. Okay? The first time a Christian is called a Christian, it's not by a Christian. It's by a non-believing world that looks on and sees the evidence of Jesus in the life of someone. There's another verse that looks on at the disciples and, and, the, and the religious elite of the day. They looked on at Peter and John and they perceived, man, these are uneducated, untrained men. But the one thing they could not deny, the one thing they affirmed was, but we can tell that they'd been with Jesus. There's something about them. The, the idea here is a disciple of Jesus is who we are. Okay, That's who we are 
as those who are following him. We are disciples. We are learners of Jesus. We are seeking, that's why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, to be shaped by his word, to become like him by his spirit. But the goal is that we would be Christians. Does that make sense? The goal is that people would look on and see our lives and see certain characteristics that resemble that discipleship. You have far too many Christians today calling themselves Christians. (laughs) Wouldn't it be awesome if it was mostly the world looking on at the church today saying, wow, those disciples of Jesus are like Jesus. Again, the word Christian means like Christ or, or little Christ, resembling their Messiah. Now, this is certainly why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because of, again, these three priorities. In the Sermon on the Mount, we are learning from Jesus. We are seeking to adopt and receive and be taught in regards to his way so that he would shape us by his word. And this is something that we are uh, framing each and every week, reminding you guys of this and and ourselves of this central point, that we are all, at, at at any given moment right now, we are all becoming someone. Formation is inevitable. The question is, what is shaping you? Who are you becoming? And what are the driving forces? What are the stories that you're believing that are shaping your understanding? What are the Instagram accounts that you're following? What, is the, what are the news outlets that you're tuning into? Uh, for most of us, that's where we, where we are, are primarily being shaped in this moment. And we, kinda, we tend to kind of have a little moment for Jesus right here, or we'll give him a little bit of time in the morning, which is a great place to start. But the goal, again, of a disciple is to apprentice under the way of Jesus. And, get, and Jesus used language like, you got to give up everything. Like, you got to primarily pledge your allegiance to me, so much so that, like, your faithfulness to me is, is so radical that it looks like you hate everyone else. Remember that one really crazy verse where he's like, unless you're willing to hate your mother, your brother? I mean, and people are like, dude. And the idea there is your love for me needs to be so devoted. You are so singularly about me and my way as I have given up my whole life and brought you to me that your love for me, it, it's so radical that it, everything else just kind of pales in comparison. It, it looks like your allegiance to me almost looks like you hate other things. Um, and that, again, is why we're here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here in this passage is furthering to shape us with his word. And and he's doing so, again, by describing a few of these ideal characteristics. Um, And this is an interesting one here. Obviously, the whole Sermon on the Mount describes key characteristics of a Christian. Uh, But as I mentioned, here in this passage, we have three key characteristics, three of them. And, And they all have to do with how we treat other people. Certainly there's more characteristics to the Christian life than just how we treat other people, but there is also a great tendency to make this Christian faith, to make following Jesus merely about a bunch of things that I believe and spiritual things that I do. But when Jesus comes along and speaks his word into our lives, what we see is that there is a tremendous bearing on our, our relationship with God and our, our resemblance of Jesus in regards to how we treat people. It matters. It, it is a key characteristic. And that's what Jesus gives here in this passage. Again, three key characteristics. Did you see them? Let's look at each one of them. The first key characteristic that Jesus focuses on here in this passage of a Christian 
of a Christ follower, who Jesus is again shaping us to be, it's this characteristic that we'll call righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. Notice there in verse 1, we read it, Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Judge not. That's all you need right there. Don't be judgmental. Don't judge. Now, let's stop for a second as we unpack this characteristic. And just take a moment to really try to think about what Jesus is saying here. I want to submit that this is probably one of the most misquoted, misunderstood verses in all of the of, of the, at least the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people hide behind this verse. Ever had someone hide behind this verse? You love them and you see, you know, maybe it's kind of like the proverbial, they got something in their teeth kind of a thing. And you're like, hey, you got a little, you got a little something. And, but maybe like it's a metaphor for something spiritually. Like, hey, I, hey I'd love you enough to I, I see, a, see something in your life that I think um, is, is holding you back. And, and so you come alongside them and love to, to share that encouragement and, and they say to you, hey, bro, Judge not, all right? Or as Tupac said, only God can judge me, okay? Uh, now, let me just start off by saying that that is not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus is not telling us in this passage to, um, as Christians, never evaluate anything or anyone. Judge not. Don't use judgment ever. That's ridiculous, okay? Um, for, let me give you a couple examples of, of kind of what, what would contradict this. I mean, later on in Matthew 7, we're going to look at it in a couple weeks, Jesus is going to tell us to beware of false prophets, and the way that we can tell is, is based on their fruit. Well, how do you gauge someone's fruit without judgment? All right, don't judge. Hey, I think you're a false prophet because of your fruit. Don't judge, okay? No, no that's not the idea. And, and look at even what Scripture says about our relationship with each other as Christians, this kind of puts to rest the whole, like, we can't call each other out because only God can judge us kind of idea. It's Hebrews 13. Uh, look at this, this calling to the church. Beware, brethren. This is for the church. In other words, warning, watch out. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Something that Scripture says we should be concerned with, we should be careful of. There's a danger always at stake in our lives that we would have a heart of, of unbelief and we would depart from the living God. And you can do this by still being in proximity to the things of God. But, but, but there's, there's a warning here from this happening. And notice with the diagnosis of this potential issue, notice the preventative measure. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is still called today, while there's a chance, while your heart is still soft, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see that preventative measure? Okay. The people in your life that are speaking the harsh truth to you are not judging you, okay? They're loving you. Proverbs says uh, the, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's a good thing to evaluate in your own life and just ask yourself when it comes to your relationship to the church, the community of faith, even just your, your circle, man. Do you have people in your life that will tell you the hard things that you don't want to hear but that you need to hear? This is important. If not, Paul or the author of Hebrews would say, beware. So, so again, judgment. 
the idea here that Jesus is, is speaking about here, notice this idea. It's not about not using judgment, but when he says judge not, again, here's the point. He's talking about having righteous judgment. There's a certain kind of judgment. Did you even notice in verse 2, he talks about the measure of judgment. That word means volume. So like there's a kind of, of substance to the judgment that we use that can either be righteous and helpful, or it can be more like what Jesus is describing here. And Jesus alludes to this in the gospel of John. Look how simple this is, John 7, 24. So here's Jesus putting the whole like uh, you know, only God can judge me. Don't judge me, bro. All right. Jesus puts that to rest here in the gospel of John. And by the way, the key is to read the whole Bible. All right. But here's what it says. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge. Isn't that interesting? Now he's commanding it with righteous judgment. There's an unkind of, there, there's, a, there's a righteous kind of judgment that we're called to, but there's also, notice here in this passage, there's also an unrighteous kind of judgment that we're commanded away from, that we're, that's almost forbidden. He says, Jesus says, judge not. It's an unrighteous judgment. It's not the helpful kind. It's the hurtful kind. It's an improper way to judge. The word there, judgment, literally means condemn. Condemn not. So let me give you some key characteristics of this kind of righteous uh, or, or unrighteous judgment that Jesus is calling us out of that we are all so prone to. All right, what, we're, what we should be known for is righteous judgment, but far too often the church is known for an unrighteous kind of condemning judgment. Here are some characteristics of this judgment. Uh, this judgment that Jesus is describing is, again, a condemning kind of judgment. It's condemning in nature. It's literally, some translations say, condemn not, lest you be condemned. It's to write people off without giving them a single chance because they didn't live up to your own standard, and it's someone who tends to magnify the wrath and the righteousness of God while hiding his love and grace. You're a sinner, destined for hell, blah, 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 blah. No good news about who God is and what he's done through Christ. No good news about a Savior who loves and rescues. Just bad news bears. Isn't it sad today? When we, as a historic and, uh, and, and ancient community of people, when we are those who possess the greatest news that man could ever hear, isn't it sad when we can be known by our bad news? There is bad news. There is a dilemma that Christ rescues us from, but there's a way to conduct yourself. There's a judgment that we can possess in our spirit towards those around us to where we are so uplifting the righteousness of God that we hide his love and grace. It's a condemning kind of judgment. It's also a legalistic kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about here. The idea of legalism is, uh, I've, I've said it this way, if you're a legalist, what it means is that you have a legal list. You have a list of certain standards and laws that people have to live up to, and if they achieve, by the way, it's usually extra biblical, right? Or it's, it takes something in scripture and creates its own law out of it, as Israel ancient, uh, famously did. But, but the idea is, I have my list, my legal list of standards that if you live up to these, then I accept you. If you don't, I reject you. It's very legalistic, okay? So today, a, a modern example of this kind of unrighteous judgment is, oh, you believe that mask wearing 
is a good thing. And you get the spirit of, ah, because they don't live up to your view, your perspective. You have a political, you have a, uh, it's, it's even in some ways a medical legalism. You have this view of things. Or you don't wear a mask. What, do you hate people? Okay, and, and it's kind of like this back and forth today. You have these dividing lines of two parties of legalism. Political legalism is a big one today. And I'm not talking about biblical values. I'm not talking about, about biblical principles. I'm just talking about the danger that we have when we live with the spirit of judgment, with these legalistic standards. If you, and by the way, Jesus never treated people this way. Hey, as long as you live up to these standards, then I'll accept you. It was always, let me love you. I, I, he, he was known to be the friend of sinners, known to be the friend of those that didn't live up to the standard. So Jesus says, don't judge like that. It's a condemning judgment. It's a legalistic judgment. It's a hypercritical judgment. It's not, it's not the good kind. It's not a righteous judgment. It's unrighteous. It's hypercritical. The idea there is it's quick to criticize and very slow to celebrate and affirm. It's really quick and swift to point out what's wrong without affirming or receiving and celebrating what's right. And the idea there with hypercriticism is it's like it nitpicks. Do you know what I mean? Splitting hairs. You can, by the way, you can be stuck into this mindset to where your whole life is lived this way. It's like you wake up, I'm, and sometimes I feel like that. Like sometimes the internet, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And sometimes I'm like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And it's like, our, it's like today, here's the mode of America today. Wake up and look for things to get mad at. What can you, what, let's, let's nitpick our way through life. Who can we get enraged with today and post about it? Let's, listen, and we, again, as Christians, that becomes our reputation. The spirit of hypercriticism that doesn't look like Jesus. Now, Jesus does call out sin, so I'm going to keep throwing in those caveat, caveats. He'll call out op the oppression of, re of religiosity. But this kind of condemning, legalistic, hypercritical judgment he forbids, it's distant. This is a big one. This kind of judgment's distant. It's... Um, it's a kind of judgment, when we say distant, it means that the idea is that it, it draws conclusions from afar instead of engaging in relationships up close. And most of the time, it's not distant um, because it has to be, but it's often distant because it wants to be. It's much easier to just align over here, and instead of listening and doing what God did in sending his son Jesus into the story, moving into the neighborhood, engaging in relationship and conversation, it sort of creates a line, and it, and it divides this gap and says, well, from here, I can see this, I can see that, and so I'll draw this conclusion. It draws conclusions without conversations. It makes assumptions, distant assumptions, without making any effort to engage in the knowledge of that person or the background or the story. And I just want to say again, the idea here is that it's distant because it's disinterested. It's more interested with being right than being loved. It's more interested with making a point than entering a relationship with a person. It's condemning, it's legalistic, it's hypercritical, it's distant by, by its own will because of its own disinterest by choice. Um, it's also uh, self-righteous, this kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about. 
He's talking about a kind of judgment that's not helpful but hurtful because it operates from a holier-than-thou perspective. It, it looks down your nose at those beneath you. It's a look-down-your-nose type of judgment, right? The idea there is that it's a judgment that puts down in order to self-exalt. I put you down to lift myself up, especially men in the mob. That's the thing today. Man, if I can just shine a bright enough light on that person, I can hide over here in the darkness and nobody's attention will be on me and how broken I am. But I can garnish the support and the affirmation. It doesn't matter what God thinks of me or what, how God feels about me. It matters what people think about me. And so I'm just gonna try to say the right things and I'll put that person down if it means I get accepted by these people. It's condemning, it's legalistic, it's hypercritical, it's distant, it's self-righteous. And listen to this, Jesus commands us not to be about it. By this all will know that you're my disciples. Not because we're condemning legalistic, hypercritical, distant, or self-righteous, but because of our love. Now, the way that Jesus deals with this is so beautiful. It's so genius, it's so Jesus. Jesus confronts this kind of judgment, notice this, in verses one and two, he confronts it by pointing to a coming judgment. He points to what the scripture calls the day of judgment, a day that is appointed for everyone to stand before God. It's Acts chapter 17 that says that he, God, has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, there's a point Jesus is making here. He's saying, judge not, lest you be judged. In other words, there's a day of judgment coming. And he's getting you to think about, first and foremost, um, on that judgment day, I think there's two questions that Jesus wants us to think about. Number one, who's been appointed to judge? Well, guess what? It's not you and it's not me. In fact, Acts says it's somebody who was raised from the dead. I don't know if that was you. I don't think so, okay? He has appointed a man to judge. It's actually 2 Timothy that says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. There's a day of reckoning coming where God will reward righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, accompanied by a life of good works, and he will... He will punish wickedness. Everything that, the, that any earthly court has ever missed, God has seen. And every sin and evil that's running free in this world will one day be caught up and sat before God. And it will be judged. The living and the dead, every single living person will stand before God. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's a coming day of judgment. And guess who's not on the judgment seat? You or me. God is the righteous judge. He's the only one that can perfectly judge. He's the only one that never has unrighteous judgment. I don't know about you. I, I like to think that I have somewhat good judgment, but then there's times where I'm like, I don't know what's up or down, right? I thought this was the move. I thought that, you ever been there? And, and you just see our, our flawed our flawed ability. We're imperfect judges, not God. So Jesus wants us to think about that, who's on the judgment seat. And then he wants to think about, in light of who we're not, he wants us to think about who we are. There's a coming judgment where Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and um, every human being, 
apart from any sort of saving, atoning work, every human being stands before God, broken, flawed, and sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is getting us to think about this. You know, it's really easy to kind of live your life with a judgmental spirit because um, when, when you're living your life comparing yourself to everyone around you, because you live under this deceptive, delusional illusion that you are, you know, you're, you're, you're not that bad. And, and uh, you know, of course, your standards comparing to everyone else is, you know, if, if only they could be as good as you, you're a little bit better than everyone else. But you see in Scripture, but whenever humans actually stand before God, they see who he is and they see who they really are. Like, compare yourself to him, and there's this humility. There is this cry that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus points to that day, and he gets us to ask ourselves this question. How would you want God to judge you? If right now you were to stand before God as you are apart, let's say, let's say without, just in your sin, if you were to stand before God, would you want him to judge you? What, what if he chose to, to adopt the same judgment measures that you use? Jesus says, would you want that? Think about that. With what measure of judgment you use, it'll be measured back to you. He wants us to think about, do, do I want God to judge me with the same measure of judgment that I show others? Do I want God to meet me with a condemning, legalistic, hypercritical, distant, self-righteous kind of judgment? And of course, every person's going, no. What, what, what am I going to want God to do? I, I'm going to want God to forgive me. I'm going to want God to show mercy. I'm going to want God to show grace. That's how Jesus deals with it. Now, he unpacks this a little bit further with a famous perspective. Um, and he, he, he has us. Uh, thinking about something that really in that culture, like, I imagine this is where, like, the crowd burst out laughing. Maybe not burst out laughing, but just, like, felt, like, Jesus, by the way, Jesus is hilarious. He is not boring. He is funny. Look what he says. And notice this illustration. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your eye, and then you will see clearly, that's a key phrase, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is interesting. Now, in that culture, sawdust was a thing, just like today, okay? And there is such a thing, by the way, there is nothing worse than getting a speck in your eye. You ever had that? I'm like, at that point, I'm like debilitated. I'm like, I can't be a human today. I gotta lay down until this thing is gone, okay? It's like one of my, my biggest life struggles. I don't handle that well. Whenever I get like a little something in my eye and I can't get it out. Um, but, but Jesus is speaking to a real life human struggle, man. Like a rock in your shoe is a speck in your eye. But, but he's, he's pointing to the irony of hypocritical, self-righteous judgmentalism that shows up to your brother who's got a speck in your eye and says, bro, you got a problem. Dude, I don't know if anybody's told you this. There's a speck of wood in your eye. <laughs> okay? Now, those looking on were going, Jesus is hilarious. Think about this. The irony of this, okay? Hopefully you're laughing with me, not at me at this moment. But, but the idea there is, is how, how, how absurd. How absurd to 
come at someone, with, when you have all the issues you're aware of, how absurd is it when you have obvious problems as a broken human to act like you have it all together and, and that you're there to fix everyone else? Now, I want to point this out. Jesus is, again, not saying that we shouldn't exhort, rebuke, and correct and convict one another. He's talking about how we do it. Notice what he says. He says, first, remove the plank from your eye. He says, and then you will see clearly. Uh, The idea there is not that you need to be sinless to confront someone with their issues. That's not the idea. Uh, Otherwise, we would all be doomed. We would all, the, the call in Hebrews wouldn't work out. Okay, it's not uh, have it all together, be perfect, but don't act like you have it all together. Uh, the, the idea there is when you do, if you're actually blind. That's the thing, with, with, when you have that self-righteous spirit, you can't see. It's like you're legitimately blind. And notice this, you keep people at a distance too. You're like, it, it, it creates all sorts of problems. Like, let's just be honest, we don't want to be around that kind of person, right? Like, I... Man, it's like, God, where is that in me? How have I pushed people away with that kind of a spirit? It's a totally different posture. It says this, there is no advice, there is no rebuke, there is no correction that I could give someone that I myself don't desperately need to hear. That's the idea. I never approach someone with the spirit of, I'm better. I, I have it all together. That's the unrighteous judgment. Here's what, what Paul says. Paul sums it all up in Galatians when he says this. If any man is overtaken in a trespass, notice this, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Like, and I want you to know that, that, that that, that has been my desire from the beginning of starting this church, of, of truly not just projecting that, but believing that. I, I genuinely believe this, that as your pastor, there is no advice that I speak to you from some high tower of perfection. It's the hardest thing about being a Bible teacher is you're kind of expected to be an expert in everything you're talking about. But there, listen, there is nothing that I preach that I myself don't need to eat. There is no sermon that I myself don't desperately need to hear. Uh, it's the best description. I think one of the best of Christianity. Christianity is, is, is about beggars showing other beggars where to get the bread. It's not perceiving yourself to be this high and holy, perfect person. Righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. What an important characteristic, especially at a time like this, for the church to adopt. Now, notice this second one that Jesus gives, and this one's probably a bit more surprising. Write down spiritual discernment, another key characteristic of a Christ follower. Spiritual discernment. Jesus now speaks to another kind of dilemma and and difficult thing to navigate in relationship when he says this in verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Now, some of you are offended. You're like, Jesus talked about dogs and swine in the same passage, and both use them in a negative sense, okay? In that culture, it wasn't like my dog Cooper, like little golden retriever. Hey, buddy. I mean, dogs in that culture were the ones eating at the trash dump, spreading diseases. Um, it wasn't like, hey, little Fido. It was like, get that thing is going to disease my family. Get him away. So, And you're like, I'm good. I'm a cat person anyway, all right? So we're going to pray for you that you get saved, by the way. But um, Jesus here is saying, he says, don't give what's holy. Don't don't waste it away to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. 
So it's like, wait, this is a characteristic of a Christian? This is an interesting scenario. Jesus is saying, you might not have ever thought about this, but Jesus is saying that there are times in your relationships where you aren't investing, but you are wasting. Like, I thought Christians are just supposed to love and, and, just, and just spend themselves just, just tirelessly. And, and yeah, we're called to do that as well. But, but there's this unique scenario here where Jesus says there's cases where the calling isn't to continue, but the calling is to be a good steward of your time, your energy, and your resources Instead of wasting it, investing it somewhere else. This is an interesting thought. We see this modeled in the book of Acts. I love this example. It says about Paul that he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Paul, here in Acts, Paul just gives it three months. Okay, He shows up, preaches for three months, and he reasons. He's reasoning, persuading, concerning the kingdom of, of, of God. And then notice this. But, but when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew uh, the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He's like, all right, see you guys. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, now, now, some of you guys are like, yeah, I like that verse. In fact, there's some people in my life, mm-hmm, they're swine. And I've been casting them my pearls. Now, be careful. Be careful. By the way, Jesus is not, is not calling us to, call, to label and call people swine or dogs. That's not, your, again, righteous judgment, okay? Um, but there's a te- there, there can be a tendency, we've got to be careful, because we're like, yeah, man, I mean, I, there's been times in my life where I was just done with someone, and I was just over it. And, and listen, you've got to be careful, because it's not your emotions that lead you to make that decision. It's not your frustrations, right? Uh, it's got to be the Spirit. It's got to be God. It's got to be this thing called discernment. Discernment. Uh, remember, Jonah felt that going to Nineveh would have been casting his pearls to swine. Man, I can't tell you how many people were like, Andrew's a swine, he's a dog. There was times where, why am I giving what's holy to him? Why am I still, there was times where where people were investing in my life and there was zero fruit. So there can be deception here. What is the gift? What do we need? We need this thing called discernment. Paul references it in Philippians 1.9. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Notice that. Notice how discernment goes along as a complement to love. We're called to love, but we're called to love with discernment. Now, what does that word mean? Sinclair Ferguson defines it so beautifully when he says this. What is discernment? It is the ability to make discriminating judgments, to distinguish between and recognize the moral uh, implications of different situations and courses of action. It includes the ability to weigh up and assess the moral and spiritual status of individuals, groups, and even, this is important, even movements. You and I are in desperate need of discernment of God's Spirit enabling us to be able to divide, to discriminate, to know, Lord, when is this you and when is this me? God, when is it time to stay? When is it time to go? And it's not for the simple. Uh, There's not always a simple chapter and verse because I just gave you two examples in the Bible where one person was wasting, the other person was called to keep investing. 
and, and, and this is why I just want to make this point here about this. This is why it is so important to ensure that your Christianity is a relationship with the living God and not just a theory, uh, a set of theories and ideas. We need the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit, we say this every week almost, the Holy Spirit is not some enhancement to the Christian life. He is the essential nature. He's the very essence of it. And there is such a tendency today to just reduce Christianity to what's true in, in my set of propositions rather than a dynamic relationship with God. That's what we see in Acts. We see people genuinely directed by discernment that God gives. And that doesn't come through a class that doesn't come through reading another book. That comes from the quiet place, being alone with your father, cultivating a relationship with him, inviting space in your life for his spirit to fill you, speak to you, and lead you. The sermon is a gift of the spirit. We see Jesus model this so well in John 2. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, it says many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. So, so Jesus is trending, okay, in Jerusalem. But he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he, had, he didn't need that anybody should testify of men. For he knew what was in man. You see the discernment that Jesus had there? He, he, he was able to, by the power of the Spirit, discern. This is not an investment. This is a waste of opportunity. I, I need to make sure I'm in relationship with the living God. Here, here's a, a simple prayer to pray. Uh, if right now you're, you're trying to navigate a situation where... You're, you're, you're really like torn. You ever been there? You don't know, am I investing or am I wasting? Okay? Um, am I, is this like an Andrew Lundy case where this, this punk high school kid is not showing any signs <laughs> of hope here? And there's no fruit, but I just got to keep persevering because there's that call in scripture, don't grow weary while doing good, keep investing. Or if my, does my love need a discernment to go, um, listen, I've sown the seed, but we read in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. Sometimes you're just there to plant a seed. It's time now to move on and, and someone else is going to come along. Here's what you need to pray. Psalm 119, 125, I love the NIV. I, God, what a simple prayer. God, pray this every day. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. Imagine, imagine if, if every Christian in America right now woke up and began to pray this every single day. God, I am your servant, and I am so prone to deception. I am so prone to distraction. I pray that you would give me discernment. Help me be able to divide between what you're calling me to, to do and what you're, what you're calling me to avoid. Spiritual discernment is a key characteristic, and uh, we're going over here. It's our, potentially our last Sunday online, so we're going to push the envelope a little bit, okay? Uh, and also... Um, Whatever, uh, point three. Um, the last one here is imitative treatment. This is where Jesus closes. So we have righteous judgment, the first characteristic. Spiritual discernment, another key characteristic. That's the byproduct of relationship with the living God. And then thirdly, imitative treatment. It's treating others in an imitative way. Imitating who or what? Well, it's God. Let's see what it says here. Jesus describes the relationship between a child and their father. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. 
What a beautiful expression that Jesus is describing here. He's describing the, the incredible blessing of having God as your father. And he's describing this, what relationship with God looks like. When you're in relationship with God as your father through Christ, it's this hope of, of, of reach and response every time. There will never be a time in your life if you, where you reach out to God and God will not respond to you. Jesus says, you can hope in that. Now, when you receive what you ask for, how you receive what you ask for, okay, which door he closes to open another one, that's up to him. And we trust him with that. Okay, how I find and, and when I find what I'm seeking, but he promises that I'm always faithful to respond to my children when they reach out to me because that's what a good dad does, right? He, he, Jesus expounds on that. He says, what man among you if his son asks for bread, just use basic logic, who, like what dad among you, what kind of earthly father, if his son is hungry and wants food and he asks for bread, is going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, he's going to give him a serpent, right? Like that, that's pretty messed up. Like what, what kind of broken, even like the average dad who's not even a believer wouldn't do something wicked like that. I think of uh, the responsibilities that I've been entrusted with this week as a provider and, um, and a million other things. And um, <clears throat> I just want to show you this. This is a, an illustration of this. This was last Thursday when I dropped uh, with the girls. Uh, Judah was at school. We dropped, Evie, uh, we dropped Brittany off at the airport, and I had Evie and Penny in the car, and here they are. Those aren't tears of joy, in case you're wondering. Okay, out of frame, you have my wife getting, uh, trying to exit the car. It took about five minutes for us to actually leave, and they were just grieving. Now, I want you to notice this next picture. Ready for this? This was not even, look at the ice cream. This was not even 15 minutes later. Okay, so hold on. 15 minutes, mom's leaving. Much better. Got the ice cream. Everything is okay. Like, Jesus, like, imagine, like, you don't expect Andrew that he would in that moment, give them two cones that had stones in them. Say, by the way, your mom's gone. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, even he says, verse 11, if you then, imitative treatment, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, so even the worst among us, even, even the worst among us, to have some sense to be a good dad, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven? Man, if the idea here is there's no spot of darkness in God. You don't have to ever trust God's intentions. He always has your good in mind. He's your Father. He's always there to respond to you with gracious care. He never has some sort of ill motive. He's loving. He's good. He's generous. He's gracious. He's kind. And whatever you need, he knows about it before you even do. He's not going to trick you. If you reach to him, he's going to respond to you. He's good. It's his nature. It's who he is as a heavenly father. Now, this is an important point. Because most people miss that that is the context that sets up verse 12, which says, therefore. Therefore, that's a big word. In other words, in light of 
all that God does for you, in light of how good God treats you, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule, right? Treat others the way that you want to be treated. And that is certainly true, and Jesus certainly says that. And many people believe that that was actually a common statement in that culture. There's other, there's other um, sources that have cited this statement, other teachers at that time. But what, a, what a great principle. All right, every time you're treating someone, ask yourself, I mean, we're like teaching our kids this right now. This is like just life 101. How would you like for that person to do that to you. So if you're being hypercritical about other people's issues, how would you like other people to be toward you? You'd probably want them to be merciful, right? So, so treat them with mercy. But Jesus is saying so much more than that. He's not just saying treat others the way that you like to be treated. He's saying treat others the way that God has treated you. Look how good God has been to you. Look how faithful he's been. Look how kind and generous and loving as a perfect father he's been there for. Do unto others the way that you would want them to do unto you. Therefore, it's Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Just as your father has been to you, imitate his every move. Just as the son does their father, everything the, the dad does, the kid wants to be like the dad. Imitate God. How? And walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and the sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The idea there is imitative treatment. Imitate your heavenly Father. These are key characteristics of a Christian. These are the kind of characteristics that as we are disciples, as we apprentice under Jesus, as we seek to be with him, learn from him, we pray that he would make us like him, that other people would look on at our lives and they would see the way that we judge with righteous judgment. They would see the way that we're not hypocritical in our judgments. They would see how we're discerning how we're responsible with the time and the ministry and the energy that God has given us. And we don't live our lives pulled and motivated and driven by needs, but we primarily are driven by the needs that God is calling us to meet. We're driven by Him. The people look on and what they ultimately see is they see evidence of a loving God made visible by loving people who have no other reason to act so radically and kind and loved and loving other than the reason of saying, this is how God has been toward me. And because God has loved me, for God so loved me, he so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, I I'm gonna spend my life like that. I'm gonna imitate him. See, Jesus makes us to be these kinds of people. But there's an order to it. It starts with being with him. It starts with, listen, maybe there's like valves and doors of your heart that you have closed off to his love. And the real reason why you're so judgmental, why you're so unkind, why you're so hypercritical is because it's distracting you from the issues in your life. You focus on what's wrong around you because you're able to avoid what needs to be fixed in you, and maybe the reason why you're avoiding what's in you is because you are unsure 
of whether or not God truly accepts you. And Jesus speaks to that and he says, come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. When you come to me, you're not met with hypercritical judgment. You're met with a sacrificial love that's so radical that it gives up everything to have you. You see Jesus hanging on a cross. And on that cross, God is making a statement. He's saying, I love you. And I am doing something for you that's final, that's perfect, that's sufficient. I am putting on my son Jesus all of your shortcomings and failures. I am displaying my radical love for you by allowing you to switch places. Jesus giving up his life to switch places with you. To take upon himself your sin and to place upon you his righteousness for you to have this peace now that I'm not accepted by God on the basis of my goodness. I'm not rejected by God on the basis of my badness, but I'm accepted and loved by God because of what Jesus has done. And that love, that radical goodness, that faithfulness of the Heavenly Father, can I tell you something? It changes you. It makes you different. So let's declare together, let's celebrate together, centering our minds around who this God is. Let's remember how merciful he's been to us, and may that mercy flow through our lives as well.